What is up, friends? I'm so glad you could join us today on this amazing episode of The Fink Tank. I'm your host, Adam Fink, and today we are joined by James Davis, the head of Base Daters for Natural Medicine. Base Daters is a grassroots organization dedicated to ending the war on drugs and making the healing power of psychedelic plant medicine more accessible in Massachusetts. James's work with Base Daters has successfully decriminalized psychedelics in over four Massachusetts cities, with seven more on the way. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you learned something new. That's wonderful. So you're from you're from Kansas, right? Originally? Yes, yes. I'm wonderful. from a small town just north of Wichita, Kansas, called Newton. Newton, not to be confused with Newton, Massachusetts. Absolutely. I love both the cities, though. We do a lot of work in Newton, Massachusetts as well. Mm, that's fantastic. All right. Well, I mean, I think that that brings us perfectly in. We can do our intro if we want, but I'd like sure. to just kind of like duck, duck tail into that. Let's do um, it. So first, would you like to introduce yourself um, and explain what we're what what you do? Sure. So my name is James Davis, and I am a volunteer leader for Bay Staters for Natural Medicine. We're a grassroots community group that has about a thousand volunteers across the state of Massachusetts with the mission of making plant medicines like psilocybin mushrooms accessible for everyone and ending the entire war on drugs that has had really putrid effects on our communities and for a lot of us, our own lives. I'm a bleeding heart for this issue because my family has really struggled with substance use disorder, as have many, and the intergenerational trauma that's left over from my grandfather serving in wars has trickled down and affected my upbringing as well. I always like to tell people when I grew up here in Newton, Kansas, uh, I was raised by a single mom in a trailer park where the war on drugs wasn't fan fiction. It wasn't uh, a Netflix show. It was our reality. So a meth lab exploded when I was just a young kid and we had to evacuate the park. There were drug dealers who would bully my mom and bully other families and residents. And to see prohibition's effects and have it be a formative experience in your life kind of changes you. And it turns you into an advocate for getting rid of these disastrous policies. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that powerful story, James. Um... Would you be able to maybe, if you feel comfortable, telling us how you um, came from, from that setting to how you got to Massachusetts and how you formed base daters and kind of the history of the organization and how it went along? Sure, absolutely. So I ended up in Massachusetts because I got a job with the state legislature. So I work for a very, very brave and courageous guy named uh, Dan Dunahue, who chairs the Cannabis Committee. I don't know his views on psilocybin or these plant medicines, so I just want to add that disclaimer that this work I do on the city level is separate from that state work. But I ended up in Massachusetts because I always wanted to get out of Kansas. I wanted to go see the world and learn more. When I was in college uh, at Columbia University, I was very lucky to get into. I helped run a campaign in my hometown uh, this blood red conservative town where a sheriff's candidate was actually running on the position to decriminalize possession 
of all controlled substances in favor of referring people to health treatment. And we lost very narrowly. A lot of people supported that policy because my candidate is not a believer. So that experience taught me if you want to make structural change, you might want to start in a community like Somerville near Boston that's a little more receptive to big ideas like that. So I ended up there. We started the group in the thick of quarantine right before winter of 2020, which, as you might recall, was pretty miserable because everything was shut down. And I just met some folks through LinkedIn, the worst social media platform in existence. And I called them up. We shared our stories. We're really authentic about how these plants have helped us. And the rest is history because we just started calling and emailing our local representatives to share our experiences. We said, you know, screw it. We got to let someone know that these plants are helping a ton of people. Mm. I, I had no idea base staters started so recently. So if I'm, if I'm hearing this right, tell me if I'm wrong. Base staters for natural medicine is this grassroots political campaign organization that has started in Massachusetts around the platform of decriminalizing uh, psychedelics and plant medicines and specifically around the war on drugs in the carceral aspects of it and how we can find a more holistic approach to A, drug policy, and B, access to these powerful transformative medicines. Is that correct? You said it better than I ever could, Adam. And so far, our work has yielded a lot of dividends. So four cities, including Somerville, Cambridge, Northampton, and East Hampton, as well as seven on the way, like Burlington, Needham, Worcester, Boston, a big name, are also actively considering this policy with co-sponsors. So it's been about a year. We've fundraised zero dollars because unlike a conventional nonprofit, we were never focused on raising money or building a brand per se. We were really all in on just mobilizing volunteers to email and call and start a dialogue in our communities. And I think that's been our biggest strength is it takes a lot of sacrifice, a lot of hours of work, but we're able to cut through a lot of the nonsense by just focusing on starting those conversations. Mm. So I'm curious what the strategies that you've employed and have seen successful or what those strategies may be, because you, you started only a year ago, you've already pushed four policy changes in a very quick span of time. And we think of policy change, we think of this slow lumbering beast that you have to like wrangle it from. And I guess in the grand scheme of things that may be so, but since base daters came along, it seems as if there's been this groundswelling of support. And I'm curious what strategies, both politically, both in the community, even personally, that may have worked or challenges that may be faced that you have to overcome? Sure. So the first strategy that we employ is using local to think global. So the reason we started out in cities is because your city lawmakers are the most accessible that you have. They sometimes win their elections on one or two votes. So they're very receptive. A lot of them are very dedicated public servants that just want their policies to benefit the most people in their community. They're not as sold out to corporate interests and weighing 
really dynamic political decisions. So we start at the local level because it's the form of government that's most responsive and most democratic in the United States. And you might find this interesting, Adam, I was reading up on prohibition, alcohol prohibition, which ended 88 years ago this month. And it's ironic because we're employing one of the same strategies that the prohibitionists did, the temperance movement, because we believe that if you go city by city and then state by state, in a very short period of time, you can change federal law. So the end strategy of this organizing is to train as many advocates, inspire as many advocates that they do have political power, and that's going to pressure eventually a U.S. attorney general to reschedule these plants at the federal level under pressure by sheriffs across the United States, law enforcement, veterans groups. But that all starts locally because we can't really affect the decision making of Senator Joe Manchin or President Biden by doing you know, issue advocacy at the federal level. It's incredibly difficult. But at the local level, we have so much to look forward to and so much power that people don't realize. Mm. I think that's really fascinating because I think a lot of the conditioning of what like it means to do political movements, at least in the United States, is very much federal. Is you have to start big, start with the top. And this grassroots campaign is very from the bottom. And it feels like it, instead of pushing over the biggest domino, we're starting with the smaller one. And that just keeps, it's almost like a spiral upward. And I know personally here, uh, I'm recording this at the University of Massachusetts. We started an organization around um, psychedelics and education around that a year ago, about the same time as Bay Staters. And we now have over 500 people on our email list. We have regular meetings of 50 people. And you can see how the culture has changed in some small way, but it ripples out. And I think one of the amazing powers of both political advocacy and psychedelics is it really shows you how much of an agent of change you are in your own life. And when I see the organizing you're doing and Mishu and all the growers and everything that's going on, you just see this tremendous upswelling of, of agency and making change. And I think that's really inspiring. So along those lines, for the people listening, is there any way you could recommend or things that you could do from your home like right now that would help change policy, specifically of psychedelics, but I mean, you could apply it to anything, hypothetically, right? Absolutely. So the second strategy that we've employed to make it easy for people to volunteer, because there's a ton of people who are passionate about changing the world, they just don't know where to start, even on the local level, is to come to something we like to call a community action hour. So community action hours are an organizing model that a lot of organizations have repurposed for their own causes across the country. And basically, what we pioneered is every Thursday at 7 p.m., we have a Zoom meeting that is not like any ordinary Zoom meeting. It's not like your boring classes that you're going to. It's not uh, you know, a meeting with a family member that just drags on and on and on where you're constantly disconnected. The way we structure these hours is you spend the first 30 minutes meeting five or six strangers and being really authentic about why you care. 
because when you're doing that grassroots advocacy, when you're changing the world by talking to your friends and family about your passions, they want to know your why. So this first part of the community action hour actually gives people a chance to kind of practice their elevator pitch as to why plant medicine matters to them. The second part of the meeting, we talk about strategy and we encourage people to be critical of what we're doing, to bring up new ideas, because we're incredibly humbled by how little we actually know about the culture around psychedelic use. We're constantly learning new things and people are constantly innovating in new ways. So we encourage people to share their ideas. And as a facilitator, as a leader, my goal is to make those ideas you know, actionable, make them actually happen. And then the last part of the conversation is we take action together. So in the Zoom call, after you've heard strangers share their stories of hope and healing, you're inspired to actually do the work. If you send a volunteer a super simple tool, like, hey, please send this email later, things come up in life. You know, you're depressed, you have a paper due, you are distracted by social media, right? It happens to all of us. But when you're in that space together and you've just heard how these plant medicines change other people's lives, it's hard not to join other people in picking up the phone and making those calls to your local lawmakers or hitting send on those emails because you've literally just practiced your why. So now your goal is just to share that with the folks who make policy decisions, the influencers that can actually change the material conditions of the drug war. That, that sounds like a very kind of embodied practice. It's very like emotional and even it may be over Zoom, but it's like it's still physical because you're connecting with another person. There's all these emotions. And that reminds me of uh, there's this book called Emergent Strategy. It's around like community organizing and they, they use metaphors for nature around how you can like make organizing more effective. And one of the metaphors they use is uh, the V of a goose, like a goose or birds flying in a V. And one bird flying against the headwind isn't going to go anywhere. But when you have six or 10 or uh, 50 birds flying in one direction, all of a sudden flying to Mexico doesn't seem like such a big deal. So I think that's really fantastic that you're incorporating these very communal and I want to say grassroots, but the term that's coming to me is mycelial connections that are forming through this. So it's not just a political cause. It's also community building. It's also emotional telling and vulnerability. You're incorporating all these different aspects into it. And I think that's really, really admirable. I'm curious where you have gotten these ideas from. Have you adopted these strategies from any other existing organizations or you mentioned that you went to Columbia. Was this brought up in your formal education? How did you personally like come into to leading these different events? I'll be honest, Adam. I've had to do a lot of unlearning from what I encountered at Columbia and uh, growing up as well. So a lot of these strategies came to me because I've been in a lot of boring Zoom meetings. I've been a volunteer for a lot of different campaigns I care about. And just seeing how ineffectual a lot of organizers are, how you go to Zoom meetings and it's just people who fundamentally agree with each other, getting nothing done 
because they're just arguing with one another instead of taking action. And then I also see organizations where people burn out. They care so much. They're lifting so much weight that those headwinds, to use your analogy from before, crush you. There's not enough people that are joining the V to help break through. And so the model that we're trying to pioneer is one where you don't feel alone. You have friends like at the UMass Psychedelic Club who are just as passionate about this, that are open about their experiences. These community action hours actually feel a little bit like talk therapy as a group because it it's really liberating to talk about these experiences, as you know, some of the most profound and life-changing experiences some of us have had. So it's just been a learning process by volunteering for a lot of groups that were failing <laughs> to uh, engage volunteers, a lot of nonprofits that have to end up implementing a corporate agenda by their wealthy donors, right? Their donors are cross-invested in stocks. They're cross-invested in making sure that the only change that happens is marginal. It bites around the edges instead of fundamentally tackling challenges. And uh, the challenge I would leave for listeners is you will have to have a day job to get by, right? You'll have to have a job. Hopefully it brings you meaning. Hopefully you get a lot out of it. But the most important work in our society is never going to be paid. It's never going to be paid. And so set aside some time and some of your talents to do work that changes the world, but doesn't earn you anything in return because it's some of the most satisfying and it's some of the most important you can do. This is startling career advice, career advice for me because my whole major is around trying to do important work that I'm not going to get paid for. So we'll see how that works out. Um, I know you just touched on kind of corporate influence and how money plays into this, and I want to touch into that. But before we go there, I'm just curious if we can backtrack a little bit and just kind of describe the victories that have happened with your zero dollars of fundraising and zero dollars of corporate support. What kind of change can be made with these strategies that you've implemented here in Massachusetts? So I like to think of the war on drugs like a bathtub. You can try to hold fancy schmancy conferences or educate people one by one, and that'll sometimes work. But other times you're talking to your uncle about psilocybin and you lay out the studies, you talk about your experience, the science, and at the end of the conversation, even if it goes for 10 hours or you know across Thanksgiving weekend, they'll just say, well, it's illegal. It's bad. The war on drugs, you know, we need it, right? Because most people, I hate to say it, are kind of sheep when they form their moral views. They look to what their community believes rather than really interrogating where they get their own moral judgments and values. So you can try to educate people individually. There's some value in that. But you can educate people by the tens of thousands if instead of scooping out water from that bathtub cup by cup, you dive down to the bottom and you pull the plug by changing a local institution. So we had to have 
important conversations with many different stakeholders in Somerville and Cambridge and these cities that have decriminalized. But the most important ones were authentically connecting with our city councilors and getting those meetings. So my city councilor in Somerville, Jesse, had recently lost his mom to breast cancer. And it had come up in the call that psilocybin has an 80% clinical response rate for terminal illness anxiety. And there wasn't a dry eye in that meeting, knowing that if we had just met six months before, we could have alleviated a lot of suffering for him and his family. And it's those types of authentic conversations, seeking out the golden geese, so to speak, the change makers, the leaders on the local level that are going to give you 110%, that are actually going to do what they say they're going to do. All of your work needs to go toward those who will pull the plug instead of trying to educate people individually. Now, I think there's a lot of value in that. Not everyone has to be a political advocate in life. We can all just make our own grassroots change. We can grow for our neighbors and our friends. We can educate our neighbors and friends. That has a lot of value too. But as an organizer, you have to think about how do we drain this tub at scale? And I just point to the fact that with medicalization, you know, a strategy kind of pushed by the big pharma groups, by 2031 in a decade, they might allow 1% of people in the United States with PTSD to, to access these treatments legally. But in just like a couple years, these decriminalized nature and base staters for natural medicine groups, we've decriminalized far more people than that with far less money too. So when you use institutions, you can you can soften the views of tens of thousands of people all at once, and then they educate themselves. You don't have to get them to a conference. They'll Google it. You don't have to get them to a conference. They'll ask their friend Kenneth. And that's the type of dialogue we think that this grassroots change creates. Can you explain what decriminalize means and how it may be different from terms like legalize or medicalize? Yeah. So decriminalization in a way is an act of civil disobedience by your local government. It's saying that under the intent of the constitution, municipalities, your cities have the right to allocate resources as they see fit to improve public safety. And if that means putting $0 into arresting people or investigating them for psilocybin or purposefully diverting people to harm reduction programs, transitional housing services, instead of arresting them for methamphetamine or heroin, it's, it's an act of civil disobedience because you're just refusing to enforce an unjust federal law that may not be legal anyway. Uh, there's, there's actually some argumentation whether or not psilocybin is even covered by the Controlled Substances Act. But I think that decriminalization basically means that law enforcement is just saying it's my lowest priority. So they technically are still enforcing it, but in practice, they're not because you've had those communications with the police. You've had those communications with the leaders they answer to, and you've convinced them that doing that, that arresting people is pretty stupid, that it's a waste of money, that it's making our community less safe. 
And we're seeing this with safe consumption sites as well, where they're probably illegal under federal law, but the Biden administration is being forced to grapple with, well, do we, do we really want to uh, let more people die in the opioid crisis by making these safe consumption sites illegal? Cannabis is still a, a schedule one drug. It's just as illegal as psilocybin, and yet you can buy it from dispensaries all over Massachusetts. So we're kind of abrogating federal law. We're saying that our federal government has become so corrupt and so broken that we have to change enforcement priorities at the city and state level to overcome these, these drug war laws. Hmm. So we're, I think it's, it, it would help if we parsed the word drug out right now, because we see lots of policies, you know, like in Oregon and Washington, they've passed, like they've like legalized all drugs. That's what the, the headline says. And that mm-hmm. includes things like heroin or opioids or other things. How do psychedelics and plant medicines potentially differ from that? And do you see problems in dialogue with people when they're considering something like a mushroom that literally can grow from the ground and it's thousands and thousands of years of proven and 50 years of scientific benefits with something like a drug of abuse, say like heroin or PCP or the opioid epidemic? Absolutely. So I'm going to tackle that in two parts. The first is everything's a drug. I'm having fun with you right now, Adam. It's a drug. I'm going to go see my girlfriend later. That's a drug. Our friendships, they're drugs. Coffee's a drug. Our brains crave stimulation and controlled substances have varying risk profiles. Some of those risk profiles are because of the society and context in which they're used. So for example, you know, the meth lab exploded where I lived as a kid, but I went to Columbia and lots of kids were using Adderall, which is only a few molecules different than methamphetamine. So drugs are already functionally legal, at least most of them, just for certain people and for certain corporations to sell them to you. So that's my understanding of what a drug is. To talk about the biases that people have, we tend to conflate the word drug as being negative. So when we're communicating with lawmakers, we don't even refer to these plant medicines, that's our preferred term, as drugs or even controlled substances. At the same time, we don't want to leave behind so many people in poverty, people of color who have been victimized by possession arrests for methamphetamine, for heroin, for these other compounds. And so our resolutions do both, right? But because we put the plant medicine part first, the media rarely talks about how we decriminalize possession of everything. It's kind of funny, like Oregon's headlines were, they legalized all drugs, right? Well, we passed a more progressive policy than Oregon in Somerville, Cambridge, Northampton, East Hampton. And yet the media, a lot of the journalists didn't bother reading the resolution or talking to us, just covered the psychedelic part. So it was kind of a two for one win because we weren't normalizing use of heroin. I don't think people should use heroin generally. (laughs) Strongly advise against it. But we're still materially changing the lives of people whose lives are destroyed by those arrests. There's a two to one racial disparity in how those arrests play out in Boston 
when folks are arrested, when they're struggling with addiction, they lose their job, they lose their family, they become more traumatized by jail. So rolling these issues together strategically, but centering plant medicine has been a very, very successful political strategy. So these, these corporations, we, we were talking about like the opioid academic epidemic is completely a, a profit-driven corporate controlled Epidemic really isn't the word. I think scheme would be more accurate Um, (laughs) because epidemic makes it sound like it was a natural causation of disease instead of a deliberate strategy that could have been prevented. Um, We touched on before about medicalization and corporate control. And in Massachusetts, cannabis is, is become legal. And from a very, from the time I graduated high school to now, and I have not graduated college, uh, cannabis has gone from something you don't talk about and that you hide and you like do it before class or whatever, if you feel so inclined to having billboards on the highway, to having majors at college about it and having large institutions making tremendous sums of money off of this very narrowly accessible um, licensing practices. And I'm curious how you feel and the strategies you have around avoiding this corporate control and money grabbing for these plant medicines that we hold so sacred and arguably would be 10 times less effect, less effective in a corporate setting. So I'm going to start out on a negative note and then end on a very, very positive one. So cannabis legalization in Massachusetts and many states has been a disaster. If you take the entire black wealth of Boston, every dollar out of every person of color's pocket, you still could not open up a single cannabis dispensary, despite people of color being arrested at four times the rate of their white peers when we still had prohibition for cannabis. In fact, those arrests still happen because a lot of people who grow their own or were part of the legacy market cannot afford to enter the legal market. We still don't have social consumption lounges. We still don't have a real model of equity where people who are disenfranchised by the war on drugs can enter the legal market. And why does that happen? So if you go to a dispensary in Massachusetts, every single square inch of that building has to be monitored by a camera to prevent what they call diversion. They don't want any legal weed, you know, slipping uh, into the legacy market, right? Well, that's pretty stupid because it costs millions of dollars to set up those camera technologies in such a way that almost 60% of cannabis that's bought and sold in Massachusetts is still done so illegally. So you create a diversion, you just didn't create it within the dispensary. You also have to have a cop stand outside the dispensary and basically be a Walmart reader, which is very, very expensive. In order to set up a cannabis dispensary in many towns and cities, you have to basically buy the city a fire truck or a playground. And who can afford all of those upfront costs, millions and millions in expenses? It's people like John Boehner, right? It's people who created the drug war. It's very white and very wealthy. Uh, entrepreneurs who are really just taking advantage of the superstructure we put in place to legalize cannabis. So here's the optimistic note, right? Because that's a pretty dire picture. 
we can avoid all of that with how we legalize plant medicine because there's not as much profit in it. If we flood the market with people who know how to grow their own shrooms or people who don't really see growing shrooms as their calling in life to make a living, then they're always going to be pretty inexpensive. Unlike cannabis, people often only have one psychedelic experience in their entire lives. And people who really like it might have a trip two or three times a year. So the volume of mushrooms compared to cannabis is just completely different on a scale of probably like a thousand, right? So there's just not as much profit to be made in producing mushrooms. And mushrooms are a, to use an economist term, a substitute good for MDMA, for ayahuasca, for ibogaine. While all these compounds are a little different, mushrooms can do the trick if you really want to have a psychedelic experience. And so I see a market panning out where it's very communal, it's very uh, collective based, just because you'd have to put in a lot of restrictions and a lot of laws and criminalization of growers to keep prices at a level where it would be profitable to open up a mushroom dispensary. You might see cannabis dispensaries, farmers markets like you see in Oakland now, even in Boston uh, at Freedom Fest, there were people selling psilocybin just freely, just ignoring the law. You'll see people just kind of selling it adjacent to other health goods is, is how I see it panning out. And in the near term, I think a lot of folks that want to take advantage of the therapeutic potential uh, and really focus on that angle for their major depression or, or anxiety should have a psilocybin experience at home in a controlled setting with a friend who you trust and then schedule an appointment with an ordinary therapist the next week and just do talk therapy because you'll find yourself with a lot more to talk about and a lot more neuroplasticity to work with, to form new habits of thinking. The corporations, I think, are really setting themselves up for a, uh, like their stocks are going up and up and up and up. I don't think they're going to make much profit long-term, especially if we're successful with this decriminalization initiative, especially if we're successful, because I don't think people are going to pay ten dollars to $15,000 uh, for these treatments if they can pay $30 for a few grams of shrooms. People will always maybe want to pay for the more expensive tailored experiences. And that's awesome. If you want to go to a fancy retreat, power to you. But you shouldn't have to go to a fancy retreat center to use plant medicine. So, so just a little more backgrounding here from, for my own sake. So these plant medicines, which I would describe largely as psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, DMT, ayahuasca, it, would you consider LSD to be under this purview or? So I, I love LSD and I think it's just as therapeutic, if not more therapeutic in some settings. It's also not easy to fit into like a uh, corporate model where they would sell you a treatment regimen because the experience lasts so long. And it's really expensive to have to pay a therapist to sit with you that entire time. That's probably why people should just do LSD at home and then and see a care provider. Mm -hmm. So I, I think LSD should be legalized. We're actually in Amherst. Uh, if we have the organizing power, we're going to try to decriminalize 
it's more of a symbolic statement, the manufacture of LSD, 5-MeO-DMT, MDMA, MDA, because these compounds are really beautiful in their own right, even though they're not, LSD is kind of from a plant mm. uh, when you think about it. Uh, but the precursors to produce these synthetics are highly criminalized and highly restricted federally. I would not recommend anyone who's trying to manufacture them do so openly uh, for a long time. But the statement that making this illegal increases cutting with fentanyl, um, lowers the quality of the product. I think it's a really persuasive argument as to why we should just legalize that market and then zone it in the interest of public safety and meth labs not exploding uh, in our communities. So these many of these plant substances are considered, we mentioned this term, Schedule 1. And just going to break that down is when the war on drugs started in 1970 with Richard Nixon, um, a long list of substances were kind of categorized uh, schedule one, two, and three and schedule. Well, if it's on that list, that's considered a controlled substance that we hear about schedule one is deemed that it has no medicinal value whatsoever. Correct. And if I'm not mistaken, things like methamphetamine and heroin are considered schedule two, which means they have medicinal benefit, but they're just highly hazardous. Cause you know, they used to use it for cough syrup or whatever. Um, it's like, you're not going to cough when you're on heroin for sure, but they deemed psilocybin mushrooms, DMT, LSD, which at the time had 25 years of legitimate psychological scientific research and thousands of years of indigenous knowledge backing it up as a medicine, a powerful medicine. How did that, how did that happen? Why are these, um, we see them as powerful medicines. Why were they put on this list, um, of like Satan, that anyone who takes it's going to fly out a window or go crazy or become instantly insane? I think there's two primary reasons. The first was to criminalize hippies. The second was to criminalize people of color. And so it's really vital that we work together as hippies and people of color to get rid of this very anti-scientific drug war, as you summarized. When Timothy Leary, a Harvard professor, was doing pretty unscientific experiments with LSD and psychedelics at Harvard, I think it led to a moral panic among the rich families and very influential families who had their kids going to Harvard University, that private academy. And I think the, a lot of the young people were seeing their friends go off to Vietnam to die to fight for a war against communism that was an utter failure and disaster. And governments don't really like it when you're questioning the superstructure of society. At the same time, you saw the Black Panthers, uh, the uh, Latino groups, working class people in Appalachia start to form these alliances with each other that were anti-capitalist. And at the end of the day, the use of cannabis and the use of psychedelics by, by catalyzing such profound spiritual experiences can wake people up to discourse that's anti-government, that's anti-establishment. I think in the future, I, see, I, I think we need a lot of changes in our society. Like we're driving off a cliff with climate change. Every single problem, whether it be suicide or 
our economy, opportunity, the racial wealth gap, we're not fixing anything right now. And it's leading to a very precipitous decay in our society. I think the psychedelics at the community level can just heal a lot of people. They can make us better neighbors. They can make us better friends. They'll make us better partners, better parents. And that's what gives me hope, right? I don't think this is some grand political project. I think that when you start to heal community, people become better, right? It brings out the best in us. And if we have a shot at doing that, then we'll figure out a political system that works best. We'll have a local political system that's democratic, that answers to people. People will get more engaged in politics at the local level so that they can, they can start tackling really important issues of our time. The other part was racism, right? Nixon had framed himself as a candidate that was tough on crime. And there's a lot of deep, deep racial resentment that he tapped into to leverage the war on drugs. But we know from the get-go, uh, maybe, maybe this was a little different under Anslinger early, earlier in the century, Latino people probably did use cannabis at slightly higher rates when it was being introduced in the Southern United States. But there was a lot of uh, just outright racism in, in those prohibitions, right? Um, you know, it was said that if you use cannabis, if your daughter used cannabis, then she would love jazz music and she would, she would hang out with black men, right? And we saw that like also weaponization of sexuality in Vancouver and on the West Coast against Chinese immigrants, that if, if your sons or daughters use heroin, they would end up in, a, in an opium den. So they banned smoking heroin, but then kept ingesting heroin completely legal because a, uh, a lot of white people and women trapped in the cult of domesticity were, using, were ingesting heroin at home, right? So all of our society's racial anxieties around crime, around division, were weaponized to create what's called the war on drugs. And from the get-go, the war on drugs wasn't nearly so bad as it is today. A lot of the funding, I think almost 80% was for uh, substance use disorder treatment, actually for methadone treatment. And, you know, that doesn't excuse Nixism, Nixon's racism or, uh, you know, chicanery and passing the war on drugs, but it really evolved under Reagan and took on a, a cultural life of its own with a lot of different politicians, including Joe Biden, using it uh, to target particular moral panics in our society, whether it be discos, uh, the crack epidemic that I think our government actually played a pretty large role in facilitating. So, opened up lots of can of worms there, but that's why we have the modern war on drugs. It's always been with us. The Federal Controlled Substances Act just really cemented it in federal law. That's that's a lot to process. Um, lots of different socio-political factors seem to have converged to scapegoat this, this one plant as a umbrella for many other things. Um, I can only speak from my experience as a privileged white male college student in Massachusetts, but the culture, at least amongst my peers and seemingly my younger generation uh, seems to have gone the other way against the 
dare program and that just say no. And there seems to be this tremendous curiosity and exploration of these substances. And I mean, we obviously see it with cannabis because every other college student smokes weed uh, proudly and openly and then writes essays about it in the class or their philosophy class. Um, but we, as we see with the, the, the cannabis decriminalization, it, it becomes corporatized, it becomes grasped, and then it locks a lot of people out, especially the people that are most targeted by it, the people that the war on drugs was started to exclude, then continues to exclude them when they're legal and we don't have expungement. So I'm curious how you're working towards um, preventing that corporate control, because I know Base Daters does a lot of work around free and open access and preventing these uh, over licensing and overbearing policies of being enacted. And I'm curious if you could kind of lay out how that looks, like what an overbearing policy would be and how you kind of see circumventing that or arguing against how that framework should go. Sure. So to start that conversation, I'd like to share a story I had with, with one of my therapists in college. I think we should normalize the fact that going to therapy is a really good thing, even if you don't have a diagnosis for whatever. I always grew up really skeptical of the mental health care system. But after my mom was nearly killed in a mass shooting that happened uh, in Heston, uh, here in Newton, or at least I, I very much thought she could be under threat because the shooter at uh, XL Industries fled to a trailer park and my friends said that they saw cop cars outside my home uh, where I grew up. And I couldn't get a hold of my mom because she was working at Walmart. And I called her, I think over 50 times, had a panic attack. I had a uh, microeconomics exam the next day and I just couldn't even really see the paper. I've, I stared at it for an hour. I'd studied very relentlessly. I love microeconomics. So I decided I'd go to a therapist to get the opportunity to retake the test. And this therapist with a fancy schmancy title with a master's degree, all these books on his shelves tells me, have you tried keeping a calendar to do better in school? And it was just very eye-opening for me that a lot of these folks, even if they have formal education in what we call mental health right now, don't know what they're talking about because they don't have the lived experience. That guy has never wanted for anything in life, and he was not the guy to counsel me. Thank God I got a note from him so I could retake that exam because, yeah, I, I did keep a calendar, a really good one with like highlighters and different colored pens too. So I think that our mental health care system is severely broken, even independent of these plant medicines. So you have fewer than 5% of counselors are people of color. A lot of first and second generation immigrant communities in the United States think that struggling with depression means you're crazy, means that you're broken, means that if you go to a therapist, you're, you're some type of criminal or there's something innately wrong with you. We have a crippling shortage of therapists. I think six in 10 people in Massachusetts who tried to access a mental health care or addiction provider this year were turned away or put on a wait list, even if they had the financial means to pay for it, even if they had insurance. 
So I think we just need to decolonize our mental health care system. We need a lot more counselors who don't have fancy schmancy master's degrees, but are just really caring, compassionate people willing to listen, talk to you, mentor you, be an open ear. And we need a formal legal structure in place to where those people are not sued because you're dealing with a very high risk profile group of people who come to you asking for trip sitting or psychedelic counseling. They usually struggle with depression. And God forbid if one of those people harms themselves, it shouldn't fall on the counselor to face a lawsuit for that. So our long-term goal is why don't we create a licensing structure at the state level that's very laissez-faire. You take a training in CPR, you have your name registered with the state, we put you through a database to make sure you're not a sex offender, right? Just very basic steps, maybe even just require like a one or two hour course that an organization like Bay Staters, if I hand it off to you, Adam, or I hand it off to one of our volunteers, could just teach these classes on how to trip sit with a friend. I know all the maps, guides, and all the research makes it sound super complicated, and there's some nuances to it, but I don't think it's that complicated to sit with someone and hold space for them. I don't think it's that complicated to be a caring friend that just comforts and nurtures someone as they explore their own consciousness. And so we just need, we need to replace our existing mental health care system with something new. I think a lot of therapists feel this way too, to be honest with you. They won't even make less profit, I don't think, because a lot of them already have client lists that are booked up, right? So they already have a full list of people. They're already shouldering a lot of other people's trauma. And I think a lot of them would actually appreciate an outlet where they could refer people to other other counselors for less severe cases of depression and anxiety, uh, and then reserve their services for people who have, you know, very, very serious mental health concerns. They're, you know, actively suicidal. I think we should prioritize the highest trained individuals for that cohort, mm-hmm. right? Another really scary prospect is if we get narrow legalization through the FDA for MDMA therapy through, through MAPS in two years, a lot of therapists might leave the legal market so they can charge more for services with their fancy schmancy MDMA license, right? So we might actually have, we already have a crippling shortage. We might have people leave that market to primarily serve high-income individuals that can pay the $8,000 deductible, assuming insurance even covers this, which is far from a given, it could be $10,000 to $15,000, right? So you might have an exodus of mental health care professionals because of medicalization of psychedelics. And that's a very scary prospect, a very scary one. So we're going to teach people how to trip sit, uh, how to sit with a friend, um, I think you should be able to sit with whoever you want or with yourself to use psychedelics versus maps that's lobbying federally to require you to get a license to even use psychedelics. Uh, unfortunately, state governments really like revenue, right? One of the reasons they legalize cannabis is so they could, you know, give more money to schools or their pet projects, right? So they're going to want to squeeze as much revenue out of this as possible. And we're just going to have to organize to make sure that's not the case because our state will save a lot of money on the back end when we heal our mental health issues, when we have lower addiction. Addiction costs our communities so much. 
worker productivity, to use an economist term, broken families, to use a, a human term. And those costs do bear out in our, in our public coffers and taxpayer dollars too. So we're a lot better off not over-regulating this because it has positive impacts on our society. Yeah. So just also one more time to clarify, when we say trip sitting and we're, we're bringing all these like therapeutic modalities in, <laughs> yeah. I think all of us have a pretty clear image of like what talk therapy is. Of course, they're better and worse therapists, but at least in my experience and in a lot of the research done, the idea of trip sitting or guiding a trip is ideally doing and saying nothing because the person <laughs> yeah. is working on all their problems internally and in a different state. And the trip sitter is kind of as they're there, as you said, to hold space. So when I had my, again, this is anecdotal, my experiences, my trip sitter, the, they said one sentence almost the entire time. And that's when I looked at them and said, like, am I going to be okay? And they just looked at me and said, you're going to be okay. And this enormous well-being and reservoir of love showed up because everything was going to be okay. And then they dimmed the lights. I listened yeah. to my music and I had a whole internal journey and I came out healed. So the idea of charging like a thousands and thousands of dollars to have someone like trained to sit in a room with someone is ridiculous. And there are the circumstantial cases. I've been very lucky to have therapy before, so I know how to deal with that. Um, but like what you're saying, basic CPR, how to bring someone down from like a challenging experience is really all you need. And the idea of, okay, you're going to go and pay a stranger a thousand dollars is a very different experience than I'm going to sit in Brian's like living room. So I think it's very noble and important to the experience that it has that, that open vessel instead of this very constrained one, not to mention the financial aspects and the limited access. So, and I'm sure anyone like Michelle would agree that you have a better experience on your couch than in a lab or a, what, a doctor's office. Maybe I'm sure if you had $10,000 for a retreat, you'd have a great time, but. Right. Right. And I'm really excited to see different modalities. I'm really excited to see entrepreneurs innovate. That's not going to happen if we choke this out with expensive licensing. You don't need a master's degree to say, it's going to be okay, Adam. I just did it. I guess I do have a master's degree, but uh, it didn't help me say that. One thing that's being weaponized in the space, though, to justify overbearing licensing is sexual abuse. Mm. And I think it's a really important subject. Our position, and I think it's a very, very wise one, a cogent one, is that if you drive this practice underground, if you require people to get a license, let's say, let's say someone named Michelle who went through a lot of trauma herself as a young girl and has mentored lots of other women on how to work through that trauma. She struggled. She barely graduated high school, right? She's been on the struggle bus her whole life, but is using that experience and that empathy to help others heal, right? She's an amazing counselor. If she is with a client and she's doing this under the table because MAPS has somehow gotten its way. We've lost the state of Massachusetts. You have to have a master's degree and a therapy license and pay MAPS $5,000 to $10,000 for training to do this. If a client assaults her, if a client in the midst of that interaction sexually abuses her, 
or assaults her or breaks her things, she can't call the police. She can't report it to law enforcement. Or if this happens at a retreat center or an ayahuasca circle that's underground, you could get the entire community shut down by going public about those abuses. So what I'm really afraid of is that this very real and serious issue of mental health professionals abusing clients, it happens in legal markets too, happens with the U.S. Gymnastics Association, it happens in uh, MSNBC, we have a culture that degrades and sexualizes women in particular. Nothing is going to root that out overnight, but I can tell you the criminalization and forcing these interactions to stay underground with expensive licensing is only going to add a layer that makes it harder for victims to come forward and harder for victims to get accountability because they're going to be legally liable as a trip sitter or as a client in that interaction. The same way before we had good Samaritan laws, if you called an ambulance because your friend was overdosing, you could go to jail or they could go to jail. And you're weighing this like probability and risk. It's like, well, do I want them to have their whole lives destroyed? Can I save their life here? Criminalization does not make us safer. It doesn't make us safer, but in order to make any money at all, selling more expensive services, they're going to go for licensing that is as overbearing as possible. And it's disgusting that they're going to weaponize sexual abuse. It's disgusting because a lot of a lot of those folks have and it's coming out have covered for people in their own networks before they've covered for people in their networks. There was this really creepy guy out of California. I forget his name off the top of my head, but he was throwing up in clients mouths and like touching their genitals on five Mio DMT experiences and maps Canada's director was covering for him. And even like included him in publications on how to be a guide. And MAPS just kind of swept that under the rug from what I know. Of There's a lot we don't know because it's just so kept under wraps in order to save the movement or save the psychedelic renaissance, right? And that's what happens when these things are illegal. You feel like as a victim, if you come forward and you talk about the abuses that are happening, you're delegitimizing the movement. Um, and so we just need decriminalization so that we can shine light in those spaces and have accountability for victims. Now, I, I, we're, we're coming up on our time. I want to respect, expect your time. And this may open a can of worms uh, that may explode everywhere. Sure. But at least in, from my experience and my understanding currently is that a lot of the work MAPS has done has been very pioneering and important to getting at the point we are now. And I'm just curious where, if I was to do more independent research for myself, I would find these sources where I would investigate maybe some of the practices that go on behind the scenes compared to the very public, like phase three trials that I see. When I see that, I'm like, great. But I, I have no idea of this potential shadow side. So I'm curious where you've come to this understanding and where I could potentially maybe learn more for myself. Sure. We have a lot of information on our Instagram at Baystaters. Symposia is a great resource that's done a lot of challenging work to hold these people accountable. There's a new podcast by one of the leaders uh, of Symposia with The New Yorker. I'm really excited for new episodes coming out every once in a while. What I will say 
is that I don't think everyone at MAPS is a bad person at all. I don't think that anyone thinks of themselves as a bad person. I think everyone has the best of intentions, to be honest with you. But the structure isn't going to help people if you just do FDA phase three trials and narrowly monopolize the MDMA market, or even worse, as MAPS did in California, lobby for restrictions on renters growing their own, on transporting psilocybin, DMT. They're doing this in the name of political expediency among their class of donors. The billionaires like Cohen and the Mercers that funded Donald Trump's campaign and the Capitol insurrection, they proudly take money from those people. You think the Mercers give a rat's ass about community healing? You think hedge fund billionaires care about us fixing our community's mental health? They don't give millions of dollars just for funsies. They give millions of dollars so that they can reap an investment, right? And I think we need to really get under the surface of the double speak of maps where they say they care about trans individuals. They say they care about people of color, but they're not included in the trials, right? It's one thing to talk about the war on drugs for 35 years, and it's another thing to challenge it, right? I'm not a therapist. God, God forbid. Oh, that'd be, a, wouldn't recommend me as a therapist to anyone. I'm terrible at growing mushrooms. My flushes are pretty awful, getting slightly better. I don't have anything to get out of this. And a lot of people in our group don't have a lot to get out of it. They might be entrepreneurs working in this space. But I think you just need people who are genuinely advocating for decriminalization, stay on that noble path, hold any institution accountable. Don't be afraid to be abrasive of MAPS. Compliment them when they do good things. They have funded some great cannabis research in the past. They funded studies. In many ways, I am grateful that they were doing that professional sphere advocacy all these years. At the same time, we need a grassroots uh, approach to this. And if we spent that 43, if I had $43 million like MAPS did, or that, they actually got 70 million in a new partnership too. If I had that much money, if I had like $100,000, we would have ended the war on drugs by now. You don't need that much money to, to get these things rescheduled if you had a true grassroots movement that was educating people. Hmm. I think it's just a marriage of convenience and uh, they probably think they're doing the right thing, but it's because they're in a bubble, right? Hmm. For example, in their most recent landscape report, they didn't even like mention us as an org doing decrim and we've decriminalized a third of the cities that have done it nationwide and have seven more on the way. They didn't even mention us. And then they ignored us when we reached out to mention the omission so it's a big club. Actually, it's a small club. It's a very small number of people in those elite psychedelic circles. But they're very, uh, they got a God complex. They really think that they are just God's gift to humanity. And I think it, it steers them toward decision-making that's very institutionalized. It's very FDA-centric instead of grassroots, which I think is, is the real solution. So I'll leave you at that. Yeah. So one final question before we go. If sure. I was a wandering neophyte and I listened to this <laughs> podcast and we're mentioning maps and phase three trials and counseling. And I don't know what we're talking about. And I want to learn sure. more about just kind of basic psychedelic 101. Um, are there any resources you would recommend or books or podcasts 
I know I personally really enjoyed um, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. It was very informative for me. Um, and I'm curious if you would recommend any to plant any seeds for some more grassroots to grow um, in the psychedelic community. Sure. I didn't like Pollan's book. I'll say it. I'm one of the few who just really thought it was very esoteric and boring. He's a very good writer. His prose are very good. I think you should follow at Bay Staters to plug our page again on Instagram and on Facebook. We have a newsletter and you can sign up for community action hours at tinyurl.com slash meeting. They're every Thursday at seven. Write your own book, write your own dialogue, write your own story, because I think as a mycelium and all these interconnected nodes, you can change a lot of people's lives in your circle and locally. You don't need to know the whole history or the insider baseball of maps and FDA and this and that. You can just start making a difference in your community. And that's going to be the most rewarding, rewarding lesson I can leave in this podcast is act locally, think globally. And I think that's a wonderful place to wrap this up. James, thank you so much for your time, your energy, and your knowledge today. Very grateful. And I hope to speak to you again soon in the future. Thank you, Adam. And thank you all for listening. Um, If you'd like to follow these resources, I will have them linked in the description below. And I will see you all next time. Peace.